Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, 1 Samuel, chapters 15 and 16. Well, this week we're going to finish up, finally, 1 Samuel 15 and get a little ways into uh, chapter 16. Now, it's important to keep in mind that in this point, at this point in our study of the, the book of 1 Samuel, the Lord has announced that Saul is forthwith rejected as Israel's king and that God has chosen another to replace him. But to keep things in context, also recall that I have characterized King Shaul as the anti-king. The king of Israel who bears the opposite attributes and behavior and mindset that the Lord expects of the man who rules over God's people. Now we've spent a good deal of time on the subject of rebellion and obedience to the Lord and what obedience actually amounts to then and in our time. And what we find in the narrative about King Saul is that most obedience... Uh, rather, most disobedience by God's worshipers is couched within the kernel of partial obedience. We tend to do as King Saul did. We pick and choose those commandments that seem good to us, follow them to the degree that they don't interfere with our own lives or plans or comfort, and then rely on God's mercy to accept our efforts as good enough. God's view on that human rationale is unequivocally demonstrated in this chapter, with the result that the Holy Spirit departed from King Saul never to return. Thus, beginning now and continuing through the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel, we're about to see a vivid comparison and contrast between kings Saul and David. Between the anti-king and the righteous king. We're going to find ourselves running into a, a few troublesome theological issues that have caused deep divisions within Christianity and Judaism. And the subject of evil and of its source is among them. So we're also going to connect several New Testament passages to the principles we're seeing played out with King Saul's life as a means of, of learning and warning for us. So let's reread the final few verses of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Open your Bibles to, uh, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, to page 314, and we're going to start reading at verse 24. First Samuel fifteen, twenty-four. Shaul said to Shmuel, "I have sinned. I violated the order of Adonai and your words too, because I was afraid of the people and listened to what they said. Now please pardon my sin and come back with me, so that I can worship Adonai." But Samuel said to Saul, I will not go back with you because you have rejected the word of Adonai and Adonai has rejected you as the king over Israel. 
As Samuel was turning around to leave, he took hold of the hem of his cloak and it tore. Samuel said to him, Adonai has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today. He's given it to a fellow countryman of yours who's better than you. Moreover, the Eternal One of Israel will not lie or change his mind because he isn't a mere human being subject to changing his mind. And then Saul said, I have sinned. But in spite of that, please show me respect now before the leaders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I can worship Adonai, your God. So Samuel followed Saul back and Saul worshipped Adonai. And then Samuel said, Bring Agag, the king of Amalek, here to me. And Agag came to him in chains and said, Without doubt, mine will be a bitter death. And Samuel said, Just as your sword has left women childless, so your mother will be left childless among women. Then Samuel cut Agag into pieces before Adonai in Gilgal. Samuel returned to Ramah. Shaul went up to his house in Givat Shaul. Never again did Samuel see Saul until the day he died. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and Adonai regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, call, King Saul finally shifts away from his ridiculous assertion that he was acting in obedience to God and allowing the people to keep some of the banned spoils of permitting Agog to live. And he admits that he's actually disobeyed. But it's apparent from his response to Samuel that he doesn't seem to realize the precarious position he's in. You know, it's a very strange irony among God's people that those who at one time had contact with God but have lost it tend not to notice and will vehemently deny their adverse spiritual condition no matter how obvious it is to others. It's equally ironic how much King Saul's admission of his culpability for the trespass against Jehovah sounds like Pharaoh's back in the days of Moses. Okay? Listen to Exodus 10.16. Pharaoh hurried to summon Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Adonai, your God, and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin. Intercede with Adonai your God so that he will at least take away from me this deadly plague. See, it's not that Pharaoh planned on becoming a worshiper of God. He just wanted the current cataclysmic circumstances to be changed. It was similar for King Saul. He wasn't so much interested in how he had offended God as in how to avert the consequences of his rebellion that might affect his personal authority over Israel. What's so fascinating is that King Saul has in this entire section of 1 Samuel steadfastly referred to Jehovah as Samuel's God, your God. Just as Pharaoh referred to Jehovah as Moses' God. What an indictment. So here's another of those sticky and hard-hitting 
questions that we as believers must face is knowing of and believing in God the same thing as trusting Him and obeying Him? Is knowing of and believing in Messiah Yeshua the same thing as trusting Him and daily following His ways? Does tearfully walking an aisle in a church building and declaring that you believe in God and then leaving and living your life as though you didn't a saving declaration? Jesus' brother seems to have been inspired to see the disconnect with such a distorted way of thinking and he's recorded it for us. In James 2.14 What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such a faith able to save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and someone says to him, Shalom, keep warm, eat hearty without giving him what he needs. What good does it do? Thus faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say that you have faith. I have actions. Well, show me this faith of yours without the actions and I'll show you my faith by my, action, by my actions. You believe that God is one. Good for you. The demons believe it too. The thought makes them shudder with fear. But foolish fellow, do you really want to be shown that such faith, apart from actions, is barren? (coughs) See, King Saul is a prime biblical example of possessing a barren faith. And what the results of that kind of attitude means for the believer The Pharaoh of Egypt had no doubts to the existence and power of Jehovah. His entire kingdom lay in ruins at the hands of this God and he sought pardon so the calamity would end. King Saul had no doubts as to the existence and power of Jehovah. He wasn't any atheist. King Saul was well aware and accepting of his own Hebrew heritage, his Hebrew forefathers, all the Hebrew covenants with God and how it was that Israel arrived in this land. But somehow, he didn't seem to connect his personal identity and destiny with the God of Israel. In fact, he openly identified Jehovah as Samuel's God. It was Samuel's God that King Saul worshipped, not his own. And it appears that much of that, what he did, was simply in deference to an Israelite cultural connection. Right? And, and, and it was done out of centuries of Hebrew custom and tradition. Has it ever bothered you that as we read of Satan in the Bible, of his fall, of his plans, of his final destruction, that such an amazingly powerful, intelligent being who at one time stood at the very throne of God could actually wager 
his eternal existence that he just might be able to overthrow God. I've asked myself time and again how of all creatures Lucifer could be so self-deceived into thinking that knowing all about the Lord, having intimate knowledge of the spirit world, personally meeting and knowing Messiah, and being present in every age as God's plan of redemption races inalterably forward, that he could still rebel against the Lord to such an extreme. And now, just around the corner, is the Antichrist. A man who will behave the same way. You know, the Antichrist is no more super-atheist than is Satan. It's just that his wickedness is going to be so great that the way his mind operates will be utterly irrational. King Saul will, in the coming chapters, give us a pretty good picture of what such an evil, spiritual irrationality looks like. Now in verse 26 are some of what I think are the most devastating words spoken in the Bible. Saul admits his sin. He begs God's prophet Samuel to pardon him for his sin. To come back with him so that together now they can worship Jehovah. Samuel's answer to King Saul is, I will not go back with you because you have rejected the word of Adonai. And Adonai has rejected you as the king over Israel. The man who was chosen by God was now permanently rejected by God because that man, at some point, began to raise his self-will above God's will. That spirit being, Lucifer, who was created by God and made the most beautiful of God's creation uh, creatures, he was allowed closest to God's throne. At some point, began to raise his self-will above God's will. At some point, Saul's sinning turned to rebellion, which turned to idolatry, which crossed some cosmic line, whereby God said, Enough! I don't know you anymore. You were mine, but no longer. If we go back to the selection of Saul, we don't find a man who was actively seeking power to be Israel's king. In fact, we find that when Samuel was introducing Saul to Israel, Saul was so reluctant and insecure that what did he do? He hid. We find no evidence of a phony or someone who only pretended to be a follower of the God of Israel. But somewhere along the line, after he was given the kingship over Israel, something went terribly wrong 
within Saul. And, 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 and the change within his soul and his mind was dramatic. And it was blasphemous. Matthew 13.3 Yeshua told them many things in parables. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky patches where there wasn't much soil. Now it sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun had risen, the young plants were scorched, and since their roots, roots didn't go deep, they dried up. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked out the plants, but others fell into rich soil, produced grain a, a hundred, sixty, thirty times as much as had been sown. Those who have ears, let them hear. The seed that fell into King Saul fell into shallow and rocky soil. It sprouted quickly. It grew. It was very real. But in time, because Saul's roots didn't go very deep, his faith and trust in God dried up. It withered away, virtually unnoticed by Saul. Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And then I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. King Saul regularly called upon the name of the God of Israel. But he didn't do what the Father in Heaven wanted. The result? Get away from me, you worker of lawlessness. You know, I wish I knew exactly where that point of no return is in God's eyes. Because if I did, I'd tell you. I'd tell my family. I'd tell everybody that I loved. I wish I knew just how much I could partially obey God before I cross some invisible line and God makes a decision against me because my rebellious attitude now disqualifies me for any further relationship with Him. I don't know where precisely where that line is. But I know it exists. Because the Word of God says so, and I pray every day that I stay far from it. It's just as Yeshua said in the Lord's Prayer, Oh Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. He was talking about the cosmic line that's out there. I'm in pretty good company though. The writer of the book of Hebrews also wondered where that line was. And he greatly feared it. Hebrews 10.23 Let us continue holding fast to the hope we acknowledge without wavering. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us keep paying attention to one another in order to spur each other on to love and good deeds, not neglecting our own congregational meetings as some have made a practice of doing, 
but rather encouraging one another. And let us do this all the more as we see the day approaching. For if we deliberately continue to sin after receiving this knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but only the terrifying prospect of judgment, of raging fire that will consume God's enemies. The author of the book of Hebrews was talking to believers, not to seekers. He was talking to worshipers of Messiah, not heathens. He was talking to real believers, some of whom had a shallow faith and others a deep and abiding faith. But because he couldn't possibly see into the human heart, he couldn't know for sure which was which among those who were listening. He didn't know exactly when a believer's continued sinning amounted to such blasphemy that God made a permanent decision against him or her. King Saul, a believer in the God of Israel, didn't know either. But he dangerously kept testing the line. Apparently believing that as a king, the mercy and grace that God afforded him was limitless. Let me be clear now. I'm not talking necessarily about breaking commandments. It's not that like if we break nine, we're okay, but once we do the tenth one, we're done for. The issue is about a spiritual attitude of rebellion. God's people did and will break commandments and commit trespasses. It's part of who we are. But for those who continue to trust God even in our occasional sinful behavior and we do not exalt our self-will above His, the Levitical system of animal sacrifice brought pardon in the days of old. And today, all who truly have accepted the sacrifice and lordship of Yeshua have pardon available in Him. After God's prophet had essentially fired Israel's king, he turned to leave. But King Saul just instinctively reached out and grabbed the hem of Samuel's garment. The cloth gave way and it tore. Samuel used that torn hem as a metaphor for the Lord tearing Saul's kingship away from him. You know, it may be hard for us to get the picture here, but understand that Saul's hem hung around his ankles. Saul's grabbing of Samuel's hem wasn't because they just kind of stood there talking face to face and as Samuel turned to leave, spontaneously reached out and accidentally grabbed the hem of Saul's garment. King Saul must have fallen to the ground in desperation in a last-ditch effort to save his throne. I think it would not be just too strong to say that he was groveling for all he was worth. In that era, the hem of the garment was in many circumstances a symbol of a person's authority. Stooping down and grabbing 
another's hymn said, I submit to you. Saul certainly did not intend to tear or otherwise degrade Samuel's symbolic hymn of authority. Rather, he intended to demonstrate a recommitment to God's authority through Samuel, however insincere it probably was. But it was too late. God's decision was final. What a terrifying thought. Next, Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom has already been handed over to somebody else, a fellow countryman, in fact. In other words, before Samuel ever even began to tell Saul the bad news, God had already made his selection for the next king of Israel. And that since God is not a man to change his mind, there's no point in debating the issue. It's done. Ah, but you know, good old King Saul, he now shows where his real concern and loyalty lies. In verse 30, he's no longer interested in forgiveness. He's interested in continuing the illusion of his kingship before the elders of Israel. Saul wanted Samuel to make a political appearance with him. He wanted a photo op. So that the people of Israel didn't suspect that maybe something was amiss here. It would have been expected that after such a glorious and complete victory over Amalek, that Israel would have gathered together at one of their holy sites, sacrificed to thank Jehovah, and then feasted to celebrate with King Saul and, and the prophet Samuel standing arm in arm as the united leadership of Israel. Samuel is a kindly old man now and really really has been broken hearted over how King Saul has conducted himself. Saul has made Samuel look like a fool. He's led Israel over a slippery slope. He's behaved so rebelliously in his spirit that from a heavenly standpoint, Israel currently has no king. So Samuel relents in all of his humanness. He agrees to go with with Saul. What we ought to take notice of is the final words of verse 30. And Saul worshipped Adonai. Here we have the deposed king of Israel who's lost all relationship with God. Hypocritically, mechanically going through all the rituals and observances. I have no doubt that Saul deceived himself into believing that God didn't really mean that he was totally through with him. If Saul just kind of adjusted his behavior a little, did lots of sacrificing and tithing, and a lot of pious actions, then how could Jehovah not relent and change his mind? After all, God is all loving, merciful, and kind, right? Believers, there's a real warning here that I don't think I need to elaborate upon. While Samuel was at Gilgal, he demonstrated his continuing authority by ordering that Agog, king of the Amalekites, be brought to him 
so that he could remedy one of the terrible wrongs that King Saul had committed. The statement made by Agog, it's recorded in verse 32, varies greatly from Bible version to Bible version. And we find that Bible translators have taken two entirely different views on what Agog meant. One is that he's merely expressing great dismay that he's about to be executed. The other is that he isn't expecting at all to be executed and in fact he's going to go on living. Now while I think the context and the cultural realities of that era tend to lead to the latter explanation, we can't entirely dismiss the former. So I think a translation of surely the bitterness of death is past is probably best in order to indicate that he thought as an honored potentate that he was being protected and actually in some way being honored by being presented to Samuel. Verse 33 then opens up another theological debate. It says that Samuel then proceeded to hack Agag into pieces before the Lord. And as we've discussed in earlier lessons, the expression before the Lord means that whatever it was that was taking place, it was done at a sanctuary for Jehovah, or perhaps it was in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They were in Gilgal. And while there is no remaining archaeological evidence of a sanctuary, or is there a direct mention of a sanctuary at Gilgal and Holy Scriptures, there are many indirect references. And Gilgal was such an important holy site for Israel that it's nearly unimaginable that they hadn't built some kind of a shrine or a sanctuary there. In any case, the debate is that some theologians say that what Samuel did was to sacrifice Agog to God. Because cutting him into pieces before God was pretty much on par with what happened to all those sacrificial animals. I have to tell you honestly that I think those theologians who've come to that conclusion have utterly no idea what they're talking about. And their opinions, I think, can just be dismissed out of hand. Not only was human sacrifice not asked for by Jehovah, it was aberrant to him. it, It didn't matter whether the human in question was a Hebrew or a Gentile. Human sacrifice was completely taboo. Not only that, but the issue that's being dealt with in this chapter is ban, not sacrifice. And ban is anything but sacrifice. All Samuel did was to present the ban, who was Agog in this case, to God, which is what King Saul should have done. Agog was to be destroyed. He wasn't to be offered as some kind of atoning sacrifice. Chapter 15 ends with Samuel and Saul each going their own ways, never to meet again. Samuel didn't do this in hatred of Saul. In fact, we're told that he continued to grieve over him. Samuel was apparently more devastated than Saul 
over Saul's loss of the kingdom. And now before we move into chapter 16, let me point out that as of this moment, Saul has been permanently cut off from God. Prophets were the means by which God gave His oracle to Israel's kings. Thus, by Samuel permanently separating himself from Saul, Saul was left stranded in the driest spiritual desert imaginable. The living water of God's word was no longer available to Saul. And the Holy Spirit of God that at one time rested upon him was now forever lifted. What happens to such a person who at one time knew God, at some level was acceptable to God, even led by God, but now and forevermore is not? That's what we're about to see unfold here. So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to read it all. It's very short. 1 Samuel chapter 16. 3.15 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Samuel, How much longer are you going to go on grieving for Saul? Now that I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Yishai, Jesse, the Beit Lachmi, because I have chosen myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll have me killed. And Adonai said, Take a female cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Adonai. Summon Jesse to the sacrifice. I'll tell you what to do. And you are to anoint for me the person I will point out to you. Samuel did what Adonai said and he arrived in Bethlehem. The leaders of the city came trembling to meet him and asked, Are you coming in peace? And he answered, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to Adonai. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He consecrated Jesse and his sons and he summoned them to the sacrifice. And when they had come, he looked at Eliav and said, This uh, this has to be God's anointed one here before him. But Adonai said to Samuel, Don't pay attention to how he looks or how tall he is, because I've rejected him. Adonai doesn't see the way humans see. Humans look at the outward appearance, but Adonai looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Avinadav and presented him to Samuel, but he said, Adonai hasn't chosen this one either. Jesse presented Shema. Again, Samuel said, God hasn't chosen this one either. Yeshai presented seven of his sons to Shmuel. But Shmuel told Yeshai, Adonai hasn't chosen these. Are all of your sons here? Samuel asked Jesse, and he replied, There is still the youngest. He is out there tending the sheep. Samuel said, Jesse, send him and bring him back because we won't sit down to eat until he gets here. He sent and brought him in. With ruddy cheeks, red hair, bright eyes, he was a good-looking fellow. And Adonai said, Stand up and anoint him. He's the one. 
Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him there in his brother's presence. And from that day on, the spirit of Adonai would fall upon David with power. So Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of Adonai had left Saul. Instead, an evil spirit from Adonai would suddenly come over him. Saul's servant said to him, Do you notice that there's an evil spirit from Adonai that suddenly comes over you? Let our Lord now command your servants who are here with you to look for a man who knows how to play the lyre. Then, if the evil spirit from Adonai comes over you, he will play and it will do you good. And Saul said to his servants, Find me a man who can play well. Bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Here, I've seen one of the sons of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play. He's a brave soldier. He can fight. He chooses his words carefully. He's pleasant looking. Besides, Adonai is with him. So Saul sent his messengers to Jesse saying, Send me David your son who is out with the sheep. Yeshai took took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a bottle of wine, and a kid, and sent them with David, his son, to Saul. David came to Shaul, presented himself to him. Shaul took a great liking to him, made him his armor bearer. Shaul sent a message to Yeshai, Please let David stay in my service because I'm pleased with him. So it was that whenever the evil spirit from God came over Saul, David would take the lyre and play it with the result that Saul would find relief. He'd feel better as the evil spirit left him. In this chapter, David, future king of Israel, is introduced. Chapter 16 is written with two distinct divisions or parts in mind. Part 1 consists of verses 1 through 13, and it's the story of Jehovah's selection of David as Israel's king. Part 2 consists of verses 14 through 23, and it's the story of King Saul's selection of David to be part of his court. Because we have the recounting of this story before us, we already know that the second part is the result of the first part. That is to say, we can see how God's selection of David led to Saul's selection of David. But as the story unfolds, we'll also see that while King Saul at first thought he was merely hiring a musician, maybe a personal bodyguard, in time he realized he had actually hired his own replacement. The other thing is that it's apparent in this chapter is that we are witnesses to how the lives of these two inherently incompatible men are a reflection of their personal relationship or the lack thereof with the God of Israel. David and Saul are in reality both caught up in events that are beyond their control. Not unlike the story of Job. They are participants participants in a, a grand cosmic plan of redemption that's so much larger than themselves. King Saul chooses to fight it all the way 
while David chooses to ride the crest of that divine wave with only the slightest hint as to where it's even going. This is another of those cases where it's unfortunate that a chapter change has been humanly instituted to divide the final words of chapter 15 from the first words of chapter 16 because they were meant to run together. Let me read it to you as it was originally meant to be read. Samuel returned to Ramah. Saul went up to his house and Givat Saul. Never again did Samuel see Saul until the day he died, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And Adonai regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. So Adonai said to Samuel, How much longer are you going to go on grieving for Saul? Now that I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and set out, and I'll send you to Jesse the Beit Lachmi, because I have chosen myself a king from among his sons. You see, there's no break in time. No time had passed since the statement that Samuel was still grieving over Saul and then God getting all over his case for his, for his continuing self-pity. God had told had earlier told Samuel that a new king had already been selected. So wasn't it about time for Samuel as God's prophet to go about uh, out into the countryside and anoint this unknown person as Nagid, king in waiting? So God says, fill your horn with oil. Go to Bethlehem. There the Lord will reveal his selection. Now this horn was not a shofar. It was a karen. A karen, right, in this case was a flask of some sort. It was probably made out of an animal horn. But it didn't double as a device that one blew upon to sound an alarm. The oil was, of course, consecrated olive oil that would be used to consecrate the new king of Israel. Now Samuel was told specifically to go to the family of Yeshai, Jesse. And it would be from among that family that God would reveal his choice. Now here we see prophecy in action. Okay. Jesse was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Through their son, Jesse's father, Perez. Jesse, as was Boaz, from the tribe of Judah. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 56. Genesis 49. Now, <clears throat> here in this chapter is Jacob's, Jacob called Israel's, deathbed blessing over his sons while they were still in Egypt. These blessings were, were really very cryptic at the time they were made. And as we studied Genesis, it was, it was hard to understand what they meant or how they would how they'd manifest. But as we continued through the Torah, the destinies 
of these sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, they began to play out. And we could see the faint shadows of Genesis 49 begin to take on a more distinct shape. Let's read Judah's prophetic blessing, which starts in verse 8. Verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers will acknowledge you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. My son, you stand over the prey. He crouches down and stretches like a lion, like a lioness who dares to provoke him. The scepter will not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs, until he, uh, until he comes to whom obedience belongs. And it is he whom the peoples will obey, tying his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt, to the choice grapevine, he washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Here we see that the prophetic blessing that says that Judah is going to be acknowledged by his brothers is starting to happen. This is merely a way of saying that the other 11 tribes will submit to Judah as Israel's tribe of leadership. But by definition, it also means that at some point, a person from the tribe of Judah shall reign in authority over all 12 tribes. And the dynasty of that person shall reign forever. These verses say a lot more, but we'll leave it there. You can go back to the lesson on Genesis 49 for a refresher if you want. Here in 1 Samuel 16, we find that this ancient prophecy for the tribe of Judah and for a specific member of the tribe of Judah to become ruler over Israel, finally, after about six centuries, comes to pass. And it's in the person of David. Okay. We'll begin the story of David in earnest next week.